Hello and welcome to Fire Science Show episode 58. Great to have you here. I'm middle of my summer holidays and I don't feel that much. I like doing serious fire science. So today I brought you some fun fire science. I hope you'll enjoy this maybe little less engineering oriented episode. But for me, it was a great, great pleasure to record it. So some time ago, I've seen on Twitter a researcher from Lund University, Ivo Jacobs, who did his research on how animals perceive fire and how they use fire. How I thought, wow, that's such a cool subject. I need to talk with him because that is, in essence, the research on the very beginnings of the fire science and fire engineering, maybe not fire safety engineering, but engineering with fire at least. So I've invited Ivo. He was very keen to take my invite. I was very happy to have him interview on the subject. And I think you will enjoy it a lot. It's uh, it's very different from what we're talking about in here. I think everyone enjoys science, given in a fun way. And this, this discussion will make you think about things you've never thought about when dealing and learning about fire science. So yeah, I don't think this needs uh, more introduction. Let's not plonk this, play the intro and jump into the episode. And I really hope you will enjoy this fun talk as much as I did. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host. Hello everybody, I'm today with Ivo Jacobs, a researcher from Lund University. Hello Ivo, nice to have you in the show. Yeah, uh, thanks, it's uh, really nice to be here. And uh, Ivo is with Lund University, but not the part you're thinking about. Ivo is in a quite far field. He's a biologist and is interested in psychology as well. And I've invited him because I saw on Twitter he's doing amazing research on how animals perceive fire and literally the studies on, on monkeys playing with fire. And that's what I do daily. I study monkeys playing with fire. It's just there little more complex. <laughs> so Ivo, that was like fascinating, eye-opening that someone researches that field. I've learned that you use also a term pyrocognition for that. So maybe let's first like, let, tell me, how, how did you get to studying animals interactions with fire and then what pyrocognition is? Well, in many ways, it kind of happened in quite a strange way because during my PC, I was working on animal tool use. Okay, And I was reading this book about animal tool use and there were these mentions of some crows like lighting matches with a beak and mm. uh, also some birds of prey in Australia that would pick up burning sticks and drop them elsewhere. And I thought that's so strange. Why is no one doing research on this? And also these are all cases by birds and not by primates because of course everyone assumes if we want to understand uh, human evolution and how our early ancestors behaved towards fire, you know, that we must study primates, which of course is an important aspect. Mm. But what has been found over over the last few decades is that in many ways, birds really rival our uh, intelligence and then uh -huh. intelligence of other primates. Uh, so that's what I've been working on. And then when I read about uh, these interactions with fire, that really got me interested. So then I you know, started doing some research and applying for grants. And that's why I'm now, I mean, I haven't done much research yet because I kind of just got started, but it's really exciting to move forward. This is so cool. Especially with uh, with birds, I, I have uh, like a, a prey of crows in near, near to my office. They always drop uh, nuts under my car to crush them. So they're, yes. they're. I mean, 
I'm happy they could be throwing like matches or pieces of burning material in my car, which I would not appreciate that much. <laughs> and and the term pyrocognition, how how would you define that field of science, field of knowledge? Well, it's kind of difficult because right now I define it in a very broad sense, just the way that animals and humans um, interact with fire and use it and understand it. Mm-hmm. So that's a very, very broad definition, but it's hard to be more specific without more research. So that's why I'm starting with a very with this very broad definition and hopefully I can refine it and sort of make more of a theoretical framework as we go. But it's just at this point, there's very little known about this understanding of fire, even in humans. And that's was maybe the most surprising thing in this project, because what we usually do when we work on animal intelligence is that we first look at human psychology, you know, what do humans understand of mm-hmm. this and that. But in this case, I couldn't even start with that because there's been so little research on it. You know, of course, there's much more applied research that I'm sure you and mm-hmm. many listeners of the podcast are more aware of. Uh, but not these kind of principles of, you know, at what age do kids know how to make fire or, you know, how, know how to use a tool to get something hot from smoldering coals? Uh, or when do they learn about the fire triangle? These kind of things. Mm. Um, and of course, these kind of basic, quite sort of like hands-on experiences are obviously must have been very important for our ancestors as well. You know, how did they learn to cook? How did they learn what part of, like, when fire is too dangerous and when you can interact with it, these kind of things. So that makes it very hard to start this research on animals as well when there's so little known about humans. This is intriguing that you, you say, like, when you think about it, I really did not hear much about studies in this field. When we talk with our colleagues who are doing psychology, it's highly related usually to crowd management and, you know, these evacuation situations. I th- don't know much studies on perception of fire. I've heard about some really interesting studies on how people perceive fire. I, I remember Daniel Nielsen, he was at, at Lund University back then. He was uh, showing research on virtual reality, showing people pictures of fires and asking them, can you take this fire out with an extinguisher? You know, uh, and to, to understand how people perceive the, the threat of a fire. And when the threat is overwhelming, when it's not so. So that's the thing. But uh, that that really is an interesting like, whole field of science that requires discovery. Now, if we if we go back to like ancestry times, like what stage are like we're talking like literally the the first Homo sapiens, or is it even earlier in in the evolution of of humankind? So it must have been much, much earlier. And of course, there is a lot of research on fire and human evolution, but then this mainly comes, you know, from like the physical evidence, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, like burned bones used by our ancestors Uh or, you know, small charcoal, these kind of things. And then there's also some anatomical evidence, which quite strongly shows that early humans were already really reliant on eating cooked foods. Uh, and this is something also I think many people don't really understand why fire was so important. Of course, it's something we, we learn early in school and everything. But by far, the most important function of fire is that, that it allows us to cook our food. And with cooked food, it's much easier to chew, much easier to digest. You get much more energy from it. Yeah. For example, if you would only eat raw potatoes, you get only around half of the calories from it. But if you prepare it with heat, so that's cooking, you, you get almost uh, all of the calories out of it. And we can already see that in the fossil remains of our early ancestors, to say around one half million years ago, that these people started having having smaller jaws, uh, smaller teeth, smaller uh, ribs uh, in the bottom, which means they had smaller guts. And these are all kind of adaptations that you 
get when you start to uh, cook your food. And one notable result of this is that our brains got much bigger. Uh Because if you only eat raw food, you literally don't have enough time during the day to find find enough raw food and you spend so much time chewing. You know, right now we spend maybe something like half an hour per day chewing. But if you would only eat raw food, it would be about 10 times as much. And you know, there's people nowadays that only eat raw food, you know, the raw foodists. And they eat so many calories, but that's one problem because when you look at the package, it shows mm-hmm. the calories, you know, it's, it's been it's literally been blown up in the lab and I measured how warm the water on it gets. And of course, yeah. that's not what our body does. But anyway, so these people eat a lot of calories. They, you know, ship all over the world and process and blenders and everything, but still they're extremely unhealthy. They lose a lot of weight and many women even stop uh, menstruating. That's, that's how much the, the body gets sort of in crisis mode. So mm-hmm. that's, I think, really strong evidence how reliant we are on food and also every single uh, human group around the world, uh, no matter what they live on, they all cook their food. That is, that's fascinating. So the evidence of fire being an important part of human uh, life is, is literally in the autonomy of the body even. That, that is, yep. that, that's absolutely amazing. Uh, for ma- ma- many times it was brought that the fire was the first invention of a human or the first discovery of the human. What do you think? It, was it invention or discovery? Can we settle that? I mean, it's uh, kind of an arbitrary distinction. Uh, because at the time, humans were already very often exposed to wildfires, you know, living in Africa on the savannah. So so they must have seen wildfires quite often. And uh, probably before they really started relying much on fire, they were already using stone tools and they were using these stone tools to break bones and to butcher meat. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these kind of things they were already doing before that. And here there's some interesting observations of wild primates in Africa. For example, wild chimpanzees in Senegal, where... In the summers, it also gets very hot and dry and get a lot of wildfire. Uh, so they're not afraid of the fire at all. They actually often travel close to it. And if it gets too big or too fast, you know, they move a bit further away from it, but they remain very calm. And one thing that they often do is that when the fire is out, they like to travel through these recently burnt areas because it's um, it's just easier traveling without all the vegetation in the way. It's mm-hmm. easier to spot predators. And there's many predators who avoid burnt areas anyway, and also much easier to find food because everything else is, is burned up. Uh, Already so cooked. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, of course, that's one way how our ancestors might have learned about fire and cooking as well, is that they often travel through these burnt areas and found food. And not only that they found it easier to find this food, but also that they thought it tasted better. Because, of course, we generally think that most foods taste better when they are cooked. And there's also been experiments done on great apes, and they also prefer their food to be cooked because it's much sweeter sweeter and easier to chew. So so that mm. seems to be the sort of initial trigger for our ancestors to start relying on fire. And I've also learned that there was like significant like societal or cultural affection to fire at some point. It was also the source of heating. But I guess this all would be after it was used for this basic function of prevent. Yeah, that's, of course, really hard to say. And that's mm-hmm. one of these reasons why I'm doing this project, because based on this evidence from the old charcoal and fossils and everything, we, we can learn many things, but many things, unfortunately, we can't. And that's why it's very important to study you know, humans and other animals uh, living now. And, uh, and this kind of approach has been done in so many uh, in so many different fields related to human evolution, is that you know, we study primates to understand like how do social groups function, for example, how do they use tools. So with my project, I'm kind of doing the same with fire. Uh, but of course, it's very hard to translate 
from animal behavior to how our ancestors must have behaved, yeah. but it just it, it gives you some plausible scenarios. So, I, so I do think that our early early ancestors started interacting more with fire, primarily because of the food and the travel, mm-hmm. and then probably later they started using it more to stay warm, for example, or to ward off parasites and predators, because because by now there's so many functions of fire, even mm-hmm. even just in uh, forager societies, you know, like. Uh, these uh, groups that still just mainly rely on hunting and gathering. For them, the fire is mostly used for cooking as well, but after that, it's also, you know, the warmth and uh, and the protection from animals, and they use it to modify materials and these kind of things. So fire has so many functions and, of course, makes it hard to, to find both uh, in the physical evidence of the fossils and all the kinds of evidence, how uh, the main reason why they started interacting with fire. And is it, excuse me if I'm asking silly questions, but uh, it's it's like uh, so far away from my comfort zone uh, and yet so interesting. Do we understand like when people start, started to understand fire, did, did this moment where it became someone used it intentionally, they understood that, okay, I can make this fire bigger, I can make this fire smaller, I can spread it into multiple pieces. I assume this is also like a part like you're trying to find that moment, like when did it happen and how did it happen, right? Uh, yes, but I would say that's already pretty advanced, uh, the kind of examples that you're talking about. What I'm really trying to start with is, you know, really the basics. Like imagine a primate just living on savannah, sometimes seeing mm-hmm. wildfire. How do they start interacting with it? How do they understand it's safe? And these kind of things. It's hard to say when early humans really understood the fire. But that's related to the kind of evidence that you do find in the uh, archaeological uh, record. Because, of course, back then there were also many wildfires. So there's Mm. always uh, a lot of scientific debate about, you know, is this really evidence that humans made this fire and it wasn't wildfire? So, yes, that's why people, for example, are mostly looking at caves because, you know, there's not much vegetation that will burn up. And especially, uh, especially the temperature of the fire, because just a grass fire doesn't burn so hot. But if you really make, you know, a big bonfire or, you know, a, a fire for cooking and you keep it hot for hours, it really affects the sediment in a different way. So that's generally seen as, as much stronger evidence that there was some kind of uh, control of fire. Intentional. That doesn't, yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that they made fire because making fire probably ar- arose much later. And there's still uh, many hunter-gatherer groups that, mm. that can't make fire. They really have to preserve it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, be, because whenever I, I talk about this topic to people, people always assume I'm talking about, you know, making fire, but that's really one of the much later things to have to have been discovered, as it were. So at first, it must have been much more just a wildfire trying to just get a natural burning stick fire and then keep it preserved. Burning. Yeah. yeah. That, that's fascinating. I'm starting to, to come to a thought that fire science is one of the oldest sciences there is. That's cool. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a cool outcome of this talk. I, I, like, I like this outcome. <laughs> So in the beginning, you've said that you've observed like animals interaction with fire that led you to this topic, crows and and bears of prey. Maybe you can tell me a bit more like about these observations and what was interesting about it. I've heard about the birds of, like I've taught you in the green room, I've heard about the Mm -hmm. birds of prey because these damned birds were spreading wildfires. And as if we fire scientists don't have enough problems with wildfires, there's birds of prey throwing burning embers <laughs> all over the place at vast distances. So, yeah, I'm really curious uh, about your observations on, on, on that. 
Yeah, uh, as I said, I really just started to this. Not so much yet. Uh, one of my uh, studies looked at how um, these crow species interacted with uh, heat lamps. So this, this particular crow species, they're called New Caledonian crows. And maybe some people have heard of them because they're quite famous for using tools in the wild. They're really reliant on using these stick tools, often with hooks even, to find food in the forest. So many years ago, when I was working with them in Germany, uh, so they were there in an aviary, I noticed that they often use these stick tools and put them against heat lamps and not mm. just the sticks. We also had like these plastic straws for experiments. They also push them against heat lamps. I want even a piece of food that they put on the heat lamp. And of course, it started getting brown and smelled really bad. So I had to, uh, so I had to <laughs> take it away. So unfortunately, I couldn't film anything. And at the time, I didn't think so much of it. Just, you know, one of many strange things that these growers do. <laughs> um, but look, uh, looking back, uh, I was very happy at least that I took some pictures of the burnt tools. And I have one very poor quality video of it. <laughs> uh, so at this point, it's it's hard to say what really happened. But so first of all, these, these growers, they really just enjoy using tools. Uh, they're, they're using it all the time to look in small crevices and everything. And I think in this case, with the heat lamps, that they probably recognize that it's much too hot to touch with a beak, so that's dangerous, but that they understand that with these tools, they can still interact with something while keeping that distance. So that's, I think, one of these example behaviors that must have been very important for ancestors mm -hmm. as well, is that you know, okay, this thing in front of me is very weird and it's moving and it's hot and dangerous, but if I take the stick, I can still interact with it from a safe uh -huh. distance. Uh, and so with this study, it kind of looks at... These crows, which are so unlike us in many ways, you know, over 300 million years of independent evolution, that they can do it as well. And they're from, they're from a tropical island where there's not much wildfire. So it, it really shows that they have the flexibility to, yeah, to change their behavior in these changing circumstances. And about these birds of prey, did you figure out why they are spreading our wildfires <laughs> just for uh, fun? Revenge? I don't know. Uh, well, that's uh, something I would really like to do research on, but so far I haven't been able to go there yet. Um, and this is something that had been observed for a very long time, but only been described in scientific literature a few years ago. Uh, so there were several independent observations by scientists and just lay people and firefighters uh, that they often saw these birds of prey in Australia, especially in northern Australia, uh, picking up burning sticks and dropping them elsewhere. And of course, at first, it sounds very strange, and there's many people uh, who still don't believe it. But first of all, there's many animals that actually are attracted to fire, because of course, fire is dangerous for many other animals, especially prey items. So if you hunt uh, all these escaping animals, then it's great to go to fire, and just mm -hmm. uh, and then it's easy pickings. So that's what uh, these birds of prey in Australia do as well. So why they pick up the burning sticks and drop them elsewhere, it's hard to say without proper research. But if anything, it would likely be just to start a new fire to to get even more animals to escape. Because if you look at these videos of all these birds of prey around the fire, it's so many. It's just crazy how, how many birds you see flying near the fire. So I guess they don't really get enough food individually. So if some of them figured out, if I take a burning stick and drop it elsewhere... I might be able to get more food. So that's kind of my hypothesis. But of course, uh, we didn't know until someone looked into it. You know, in the fire science, we also have this research on how um, masses of air are moving with wildfires and wildfires being able to create their own um, weather even. But the, there's a thermal buoyant plumes in over large fires. So it's also probably easier for them to fly 
high without any effort because they could be transferred by them. I wonder if they figured that out too, but so far it seems they've militarized fire, which I don't like. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I prefer the crow way, not the bird of prey <laughs> way. Uh, yeah. In your project, you said that it's in the early in the early stages, but uh, I guess you already are planning like your next steps. Uh, so I was really wondering, how does one approach such a research? I, it's fascinating. How does one research uh, such a thing? How do you plan your experiments? What are your next steps in this project? Yeah, so it's quite difficult for many reasons. Of course, first, first of all, you have the safety issue with the fire. But yeah. for example, what we're now We know that very with, well in uh, fire science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we deal with that problem all the time. Yeah, so so you don't want to you don't want to expose the the animals to this either. So, of course, we have to be very careful with that, but uh for example, what we do with our other experiments with the birds is that we just have one of these small lighter blocks, you know, uh, to to light your fireplace. Mm-hmm. And we, we have it sort of outside the aviary, so they can't actually interact with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is an experiment I'm doing now with our uh, ravens. Uh, and it's quite similar to the, the study with the crows that I mentioned, is that if there's a fire on the outside of the aviary, just a small flame, and there's food on the inside, you know, mm-hmm. when they can walk up and pick it up, but they can also use a tool to stay further away from mm-hmm. the strange fire that they're not familiar with. So that's uh, one approach, and I mean, I don't have the results yet, but it looks quite promising. And uh, and another study I'm very excited about is taking place in uh, Japan. Uh, so there, there's a zoo where, where for the past 60 years, uh, zookeepers have been making this big bonfire in the outdoor enclosure of these Japanese macaques. Uh, you might better know them as uh, Japanese snow monkeys. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so this happens, you know, maybe a dozen times every winter. And then what the monkeys do is they all get close to the fire and they gather around, especially when it's very cold. So they seem to warm themselves up and they don't really show any fear of the fire. So often when I look at these videos, I get a bit worried, but it seems like you know exactly sort of what they can and can't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, kind of the problem with this is, is that we don't really know how they behaved in the very beginning, you know, 60 years ago. But at least we know by now there's this troop, you know, and they of course have many young monkeys as well and the which are exposed to this fire, but it seems like they're. Uh, it seems like they learn very well how to interact with it. Uh, so yeah, so that's what we do now. We're just there, and we're filming these interactions with the fire, and then you get the videos, and you have to get these different behaviors from from the videos. So that's what we're working on now. But that's a big part of uh, the current project. I, I love how you say that they seem to not be afraid of fire. I wonder uh, now. It's a practical thing because uh, as fire engineers, we're also like developing tools to save also animals in buildings and in, in, in wildfires. So we also should care about that aspect of fire. And it, it's interesting that some animals can build appreciation even for fire and then not, uh, not be afraid of that at all. Maybe we should call them the, the Japanese fire monkeys from now on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and have you observed any like intentional outside of not being afraid and, and just using it for forming any evidence of like intentional use of fire at primates uh, already, or it's later in your project? Yeah, so right now it's still just just an observational study. So we are just there filming what they do naturally. So we haven't planned any experiments yet, but uh, maybe we'll do that in the future. But one thing that the zookeepers do there at the Japan Monkey Center is that before they make this big bonfire, they take these uh, sweet potatoes and they mm-hmm. put them underneath where they build fire. So then they light the fire and after a few hours, 
with fire out and yeah and then they just let the monkeys take the sweet potatoes but of course they're still quite hot so uh, uh, yeah so you often see the monkeys rubbing their hands you know on the fur like oh that's hot uh, and they're often even walking over the hot coals uh, so often it looks quite risky but it seems like they're careful enough that they know you know when do you get burnt and when don't you uh, and uh, that's probably also one reason why they like the fire, but already just when the fire spilled up, so they would have to wait several hours before they get the potatoes, they're uh, mm-hmm. already uh, gathering around. Uh, and it seems to be the case that when it's especially you know wet and windy and cold, that they sit closer and also in a bigger group, so they often also fight over access to the fire because there's so many monkeys that they don't all fit <laughs> around the fire. That's so cool. That's such a cool research. And they seem to understand the... Uh this improvement in food from processing, like you mentioned, the sweet potato now. That's, uh, yeah, so it's, um, I mean, it's hard to say what they understand about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in many ways, it's it's very easy just because uh, because after the fire, the potatoes they get are just so soft and easy to chew and they are literally much sweeter because of the heating process. So in many ways, you don't have to understand anything about the fire other than, you know, when it's been in the fire, it gets tastier. And you don't have to understand anything about how it's better for you how you get more of the calories from it, how it's easier to digest. Uh, none of these things you have to understand. It's just uh, this food is tastier. So that's why you learn to really go for the cooked food. And that's likely how our ancestors did as well, that they didn't know, you know, of course, the biological benefits of cooking. Because that's quite uh, that's quite complicated to understand. Mm-hmm. But just if the food gets tastier, then that's a very simple mechanism. I, I guess it also smells better. So that's an easy... <laughs> I wonder if the fact I, that we like the smell of burnt food is also a evolutionary outcome of, of that exposure to fire and, and I wonder if it smells better for animals too. My dog seems to enjoy my food better than than unprocessed <laughs> food for one thing, but I cannot I'm not sure if I can attribute that to his understanding of fire. <laughs> That's for sure. No, maybe not. Ivo, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you very much for that that was a really interesting journey into into world of of uh, pyrocognition and and uh, evolution of understanding fire and i think it's such a nice subject to study and as a fire science community member i i really enjoy looking at this interdisciplinary studies around and that are so profound like you're touching the the very first fire engineers there so i hope you get far with your research on the nature cover or somewhere somewhere nice and uh, <laughs> yeah good good luck with that uh, if if someone ah just one last question if someone wanted to learn more about this maybe there's some documentary series or some books to read that someone could learn more yeah so i would say the number one book on this topic is written by Richard Rangham who's a primatologist and uh, his book is called catching fire uh, how cooking made us human uh, mm. And it's maybe a little bit outdated by now because there's been a lot of research on this topic, but the general points still stand. So it's, as I said, mainly about the importance of cooking and human evolution. And he uh, has some nice examples as well about animal behavior, uh, even though it's it's mostly some anecdotes. <laughs> um, and for the rest, yeah, it depends what kind of angle you're interested in. It's because there's many archaeologists writing about this, and I'm not an expert in that, really. Cool. Uh, I did write an um, article for uh, for Aeon, it's a website, so I wrote an essay about this whole project. So if you're interested, uh, be sure to check it out where, where there's also some references and there's some more yeah, uh, That's cool. I'll, I'll link details. it into footnotes, of, of course. That's, that's, yeah, that's really cool. And once your research is matured enough, you're very welcome to publish in some of the 
fire engineering journals on your findings. I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty okay. sure it, it would be well received. Um, Ivo, thank you very much for your time. I, I really enjoyed to learn about biorecognition and, uh, and all the best in your further journey. Yeah, thanks. It was really fun uh, chatting with you. And that's it for this short, fun summer episode of Fire Science Show. I hope you've enjoyed this twist in the fire science. Well, it certainly was science of fire, in just in a very different way that we deal normally with. I, I hope it opened some questions in your heads and you start perceiving the history of fire much more. For me, it was a shocker to learn that fire has literally changed the human anatomy. And, and maybe if not fire, we would not be where we are today. Maybe I would not be able to record this podcast. But that, that's really, really intriguing to see how big impact fire had on our lives. And now us doing research on fire, well, it's nice to recognize we're doing research on a thing so, so fundamental to the humanity. Um, as I feel really out of comfort zone recording this episode, there is not much more I can add to this. It was just a great conversation. and. I'm looking up to read up the, the book that Ivo recommended because it, I, I certainly must say I'm intrigued by this topic. So yeah, that is it for today. And uh, next week we're back to fire engineering routine and I have great lineup of guests coming. So I hope you see you here next week, next Wednesday. See you there. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.